Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, I would like to ask each of you to ponder when the last time was that you donned a hat purely as a form of adornment. You know, it's summer now, so many of us will throw on a baseball hat for a walk or a jog outside or while working in the garden, etc., And many of us wear hats at the beach to shade our face from the sun. But these rather practical applications of a hat isn't exactly what I'm asking you to think about today. Rather, when was the last time you wore a hat as the icing on the cake in terms of your ensemble, the proverbial cherry on top? Cass, do you want to go first? I will go first. As you know, April, you saw me just yesterday. I did. <laughs> April is visiting. We went to the fashion show at the 100th annual Indian Market in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And I wore my green and black felt hat on top of my Karina Emmerich Emmy Ensemble. And yeah, it definitely was the icing on the cake in terms of my outfit. I actually built my entire outfit around that hat, it could be argued. And you got several compliments on your outfit yesterday. <laughs> So, I mean, if we're speaking strictly here about like wearing a hat not for the purposes of shading my face from the sun, I guess it's been a few months since I've worn a hat, probably since Easter, when I wore a little fascinator with a very, very big taffeta hui peel dress (laughs) to a party thrown by past dress guest Dandy Wellington after the Easter parade here in New York City. You looked fabulous. <laughs> the Easter parade, um, thank you. The Easter parade here is is a very much time-honored tradition for fashion lovers in New York City and also a chance to dress up and show off all of your Easter finery, which of course includes hats. But really these days, Cass, it's more of a special occasion when I wear a hat. And, and I think that is the case with most of us now, honestly. Yeah, and this is something that I spoke about very recently with Master Milliner Stephen Jones. Um, He joined us last week, actually, to speak about his illustrious career in high fashion. And he astutely pointed out that really it's been only since, you know, the last few decades that hats have been deemed, you know, so-called special occasion wear by many, if not most of us. Prior to the 1960s, you know, the wearing of a hat was a given each and every day by cultures all around the globe for centuries. And it's only in the past 75 years or so that our sartorial habits have shifted. And really, it's an aberration in the history of fashion, if you consider it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it goes without saying that when a 
vast majority of people of a given culture were wearing hats every single day, well, this meant the market for them was substantial and in turn the making of them essential and potentially lucrative. And that is what we turn our attention to today, the hat trade, millinery, and its makers. And in a little bit of a pivot from our normal way of working this week, we look less at the hats themselves and more about the labor and the lives of its workers. So this is, of course, a huge topic. And this week's episodes, well, a two-parter, are really just general overarching surveys of the millinery industry in America during the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And as April said, because of the vastness of this subject, our discussion today is more or less limited to the American millinery industry, starting with the birth of our nation up to the 1960s. And today we are pleased to welcome Nadine Stewart to the show. She joins us to discuss her book, American Milliners and Their World, Women's Work from Revolution to Rock and Roll. Nadine is an adjunct professor of fashion history at Montclair State University in New Jersey. She's also a visiting lecturer at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. And, of course, she's an alumni of the Fashion and Textile Studies Program at FIT, which you and I, of course, both graduated from April. Nadine, a warm welcome to Dressed. Nadine, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be able to do this. Yes. And um, we are here, of course, to discuss your book, American Milliners and Their World, Women's Work from Revolution to Rock and Roll. And I have to say, it is delightful. And you and I have known each other for many years now. And so I have watched you from the beginning process of this all the way to its publication. And I think we'll talk about this here at the very end of the show, but it's in hardback now, but it's about to come out in paperback. I think well. it is out now. It just okay. came, it was due to come out in August. So I've seen it on uh, Amazon. So it is, it is actually out. Great. <laughs> well, we'll give you more details about that, listeners, right. later at the end of the podcast. So I'm going to ask you a question that we have, of course, been asking a lot of our guests recently, and that really is about some of your earliest memories of fashion. And in particular, because of our topic today, I'm hoping that you might also share some of your memories of millinery specifically. Sure, that's easy. I was born um, in, I'm from Pennsylvania, and I was basically raised in Pittsburgh from the time I was three years old. And Pittsburgh was in, is an interesting city, and this is one side of the uh, the interest in this book, in that it was a, a city that uh, really was the center of uh, many waves of migration in the early 20th century. And so when I was a, a child, I used to uh, take ride buses and things, and I'd see Orthodox churches with crosses that were different. And Pittsburgh also had a place in the uh, University called the Nationality Rooms, which we used to visit when I was a Girl Scout. Each room decorated by the nationality with a really amazing place. So it got me very interested in that. But uh, as far as millinery, um, my mother was a uh, really into, was always interested in fashion. And this is in the 50s. And so in the 50s, every fall, things changed. And so she would uh, look and see where the hemlines were and where the things were. And as far as pertaining to me, she made a lot of my clothes. So we would uh, look at different patterns. But the big thing, of course, was, and I mentioned this in the book, that every February, we had a decision to make. And every February, my mother would ask me what kind of hat I wanted for my Easter bonnet. Mm -hmm. And the reason she had to do it in February was she was probably going to be making the outfit I wore, so she needed time. 
And I had two choices. I could have a bonnet with flowers, or I could have a sailor hat with streamers. And so we would make that decision, and then we would move on. Now, of course, I couldn't have the sophisticated hats like my mother had. <laughs> and I think I talk about the fact that I, my dream was to have a big black cartwheel hat. There's a picture of my mother and I at uh, an event at Easter within that hat. And, of course, hats. So hats were always, I guess they're really special to me. I've tried to pinpoint a moment when I really could say I was really interested. I, I really can't. Um, but it's always been a source of fascin- you know, interest for me. Mm-hmm. And then moving ahead, of course, there's a period, you know, where you couldn't find hats, good hats. Uh, but I returned, when I returned to uh, FIT in the fall of 2006, the New York Public Library was at the same time was having a, a focus a fall fo- on fashion. I don't have the brochure anymore. But you know how they have training sessions mm-hmm. on how to do things? And I went to one which was uh, searching diaries. And so at the end of the training, which was pretty short, I typed in, uh, search, let's see what I can find on milliners, because I'd gotten interested in this. I'd read uh, House of Mirth for Mm -hmm. the first time, where there's that famous scene, which I also talk about in the book with Lily Bart trying to be feebly to become a milliner. And so I typed in, uh, I think it was milliners, diaries, expecting nothing. And I came up with two sources. And I was so surprised. And it turned out they're both, I've I've used them both in the book. Uh, One was the uh, story of a young milliner in Maine in 1860. And the other was a fictionalized memoir. It's obviously a woman's memoir, the detail, but she wrote it under a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. And I also have used that. And so when I did my first paper at FIT uh, for uh, Lourdes Font's uh, fashion history class, I used both of them. And I also discovered a, and I don't quite remember how I did that, probably just on searches, I discovered a really down-to-earth writer named Virginia Penny. Virginia Penny was kind of an early social worker and social activist, Mm -hmm. and she did a whole study, a huge study, of women's work. Mm. And she the thing that was really appealing about her is she writes in a very down-to-earth style. No, none of the 19th century romanticism and morality like uh, Sarah Josepha Hale. And so I, I came across that, and that really, those things really sort of were the founding blocks mm-hmm. uh, for that. And then when I was trying to find my thesis topic, which took me a while, I discovered another study from the progressive era called A Seasonal Industry. Mm. And uh, that was a study about trying to uh, make millinery away from being a seasonal industry and a more year-round industry. But it also led me to the pictures of Lewis Hine. Yes, he's so wonderful. And Lewis Hine, uh, these uh, had done pictures. He'd actually was able to kind of work, lie and work his way into these factories to take pictures uh, and so the pictures, are, including the one on the cover, are these great, great pictures of, of women at work. And uh, again, not romanticized at all. So uh, those were some of the things that, um, some of the big things that, that really kind of kept moving me along, along this. And then you were there, actually. I did a presentation for the Costume Society of America and utilized that paper for my first presentation. And 
I just kept, you know, digging, digging the topic. Uh, someone asked me if I wanted to write a book, a book at the end of the conference. And I, you know, it took me a while. You know, I had to uh, kind of refine my work. I had, I, I was originally going to do a book where I started maybe like uh, The Feminine Economy by Wendy Gamber, where they, she started around the Civil War mm-hmm. and then went to the 20s. And as I researched, I realized I had to go back. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, it occurred to me, where was the term milliner come from? Which and, I'll talk. That's what I want to ask you yeah. next. This yeah. is fascinating. And then I realized that after I was, uh, got, I did my thesis actually on American millinery in the 40s, and someone, when I proposed it, said, well, you've got to talk about why people aren't wearing hats anymore. And so I realized that I had to go to up to at least to the 60s. And I, when I remember thinking, when I realized that, that I was, pro- I asked myself if I was really out of my mind. <laughs> but, um, you know, it really, it really was, uh, I'm glad I did it. And it really, it really kind of gives you the whole scope. Yeah, and, and the book is so wonderful, and you weave in so much social history, so much labor history, so much so much just straight history, and it's all under the lens of examining women's lives at this time, both who were making and also wearing these hats. Well, one thing you find when you're researching this, and I found this, actually, I, I remember reading um, Valerie Steele's uh, Women of Fashion, mm-hmm. where she mentioned she she got interested. She was teaching this course, and it's easy to find that women in history vanish. You know, designers suddenly. You know, men you hear about them, but women in history vanish, and that kind of stuck in my mind when I was trying when I was working on this and trying to research this. Often. Uh, women, you know, go under their husbands' names or, or they, you know, they don't, uh, they just don't. And as we move along in history, uh, when men took over the industry, you know, they didn't talk about the workers barely at all. Mm-hmm. So it's been a real exploration. Yes. And, and let's explore that point that you just made earlier, which is the origin of the term milliner. I had no idea about this. And I was like, I literally was like, aha, when I read it. What is the origin of this term? And and how do you specifically want to define millinery? You know, we've always, mm-hmm. we're already banding this, right. this term about. Well, I actually, I, I looked it up actually in the dictionary. And I advise anybody with a term like that to look it up in the dictionary because they'll have an etymology mm-hmm. if it's a good dictionary. And I discovered that the milliners come from the word milliners. And it refers to way back in, even starting in, I think, at least in the Renaissance. Uh, it's even mentioned, uh, Milano is even mentioned in Shakespeare, where Italy at that time was sort of the fashion center of the world. And the Milaners used to come out of Italy and go to the courts of Europe and sell trims. Mm-hmm. And so millinery, women were wearing, of course, headpieces and headdresses. But this refers, this is, millinery is different because it, refers to the building of the hats, but also with adding this trims. And of course, this is going to evolve. That was the room for these uh, trim salesmen who were the marchand de mode. And uh, the marchand de mode, and you see them in pictures often in the 18th century, visiting their uh, clients with a little band box full of trimmings. And of course, the most famous of these um, marchands was Rose Bertin. 
And Rose Bertin, of course, was uh, very closely associated with uh, Marie Antoinette, but she also was very much involved in uh, this whole surge of these huge headpieces. You see these huge headdresses in the courts of, uh, of France. The most famous one is La Belle, the Belle Poule, which is the ship which commemorated a French uh, naval victory. But she really did a lot of uh, decorating these huge poofs. And also, there was even there was even a man milliner. There weren't there aren't too many of them, but there was one that devised a uh, a system where you could uh, lower you could if you lower the hat you could mm-hmm. click and lower it your headdress if you were around someone that you knew wouldn't approve like your grandmother or somebody <laughs> like that. But these these headpieces in you're in a court where it's kind of a hothouse and people would uh, you know sort of compete to decorate their headpieces. Now of course time goes on this. Of course, this headdress, this headdress with the French Revolution goes away, but the trims and the skills really, I mean, and it evolves into millinery, mm-hmm. uh, which is really thought of as the hats for women. When men's hats are made by hatters, uh, the most famous one, of course, being the one in Alice in Wonderland, but they are blocked, and that's going to be another issue uh, as we move along in the 1920s. But that sort of sets uh, the things up. So in America, milliners, of course, are a business that, you know, women could set up. And uh, even though there were many restrictions uh, in the 19th century, uh, it was definitely uh, became a female economy, little female economy. Yes. And, and, and let's talk about that. Let's talk about the role that the millinery trade played in the early American economies and the role of fashion in the American identity at this like very, very early point. Um, compared to Europe, were there any differences in terms of like the styles that women were wearing or even just the industry itself? What were those differences between the two, how it was practiced in Europe and the developing American colonies? Well, Pre-American Revolution, uh, there was, of course, a lot of influence from Europe and particularly from England. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of uh, importation of goods. Now, after the Revolution and during the Revolution, of course, there was this push to be American mm-hmm. uh, and, and not wear and not be sort of corrupted by the fashions. Uh, and uh, th- there was, of course, the age of homespun, which means that People were even being encouraged to spin and weave their own fabric, but also it transported to millinery, these so sort of huge headpieces, which never really translated to this country. But the headdresses, of course, were kind of were frowned on. I mentioned uh, a thing in Philadelphia where people mocked someone with such a large headpiece. But it's still something that women were supposed to you know, wear. And as the time went on, even though in the 19th century, Women uh, were really discouraged from working, but of course, women continued to work through this period. Millinery and being a milliner was one of the few jobs that a white woman in America particularly could work and be respectable. So that's a really huge influence. And when you also think about it, there's an enormous need for hats. Mm-hmm. And even in the late 18th and early 19th century, uh, women actually were inventors, and, and some of them even got patents. There was a woman named Sylvia Robertson Masters who developed a new wor- way of working and straining in straw, 
And she got a patent from King George III. Now, mm-hmm. that's before the revolution. And then uh, in 1798, a 12-year-old named Bessie Medcalf uh, devised a new way of braiding straw. And she was trying to copy a very expensive Italian straw hat. And this straw braiding thing spread all through New England. And it was really, there were straw towns. It was a huge industry. And there's even, if you go to some historical societies in Connecticut, you can you can still see, uh, in fact, there's even a statue for one of them. I think it's in Weathersfield. Then as time went on, the, Betsy Metcalf didn't get a patent, but Mary Keese, did. She developed a new method of braiding with straw. And as time went on, Sophia Woodhouse also used native straw rather than imported straws. So American women, you know, really were very much in the lead in in patenting and making these things. You know, it's one of those uh, industries that really, it really took off and, you know, became a good way for uh, women and children to really uh, make a living. Now, American women, of course, in many ways were restricted because uh, the new founders of the country instituted a constitution that didn't mention women. Mm-hmm. And so women didn't really have, you know, they're, they're hobbled with business for not having any rights. And yet this work continued. I just want to point out, we did briefly mention a male milliner, but that was kind of the aberration at this time. It really was considered women's work for the most part. Um, And I love this quote that you pulled from a working woman's guide from the 1850s, which you include in the book, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, fancy a man making a bonnet. Above all, fancy him putting on the trimming, a pretty mess he would make of it. No, a bonnet in all its aspects is feminine and should be made and sold as it is worn solely by the sex in which nature designed it. So let's get into this. Let's delve into this a little bit further, this gendering of the trade at the time. It's very, very intense. It's one of these, uh, for one thing, I think there's, of course, when you think about a hat uh, and being sort of being fitted for a hat, there was actually a way of showing the hats, Mm -hmm. where I have a picture in the beginning of the Gilded Age where you have someone showing the bonnets, where there was this method where you didn't, of course, pull it off by the uh, brim. You you pulled it by the crown. It was almost like a a dance of the way you displayed it. But, of course, fitting it is kind of an intimate project. And so with the Industrial Revolution, with men really leaving work in the home and the more craft industries and maybe uh, like in the 18th century, you have um, men really sort of renouncing what they that they called fashion mm-hmm. and uh, women really sort of becoming more engaged in uh, dress that was much more elaborate, elaborate <laughs> shall we say. This is the whole thing of the women's sphere. Women were to remain in the home. And so I think that distinction, just that really was so strong that the millinery shop was a place for women to go. It's kind of like a like the idea of almost like being a beauty shop today, mm-hmm. where men didn't go really into the beauty shop. And there was a real restriction, except for the fact that, of course, men controlled the purse strings and often, you know, could come and, you know, give their approval to what was but, but it's, it goes on, and I actually I have a lot of in the early 20th century as well, they're talking about can a man be a milliner? Mm-hmm. 
And there's even mention of a young man who wanted to be a milliner. Uh, this is in the early 20th century, who came into a milliner shop and made a hat and did a good job, but they didn't want him working on the tables with the women. Mm. That would be, you know, scandalous. So they had to work, they had to keep him closed off and, and out of sight of the women. Interesting. And also, too, maybe out of sight of the customers themselves. Yeah. Um, So I'm curious, um, obviously, there is a great amount of skill that goes into this trade. And I know that you know this personally. I do. (laughs) Because you do make hats. But for novices during the 19th century and even in the 18th century entering this profession, how did they actually acquire the skills for hat making? In the 18th century, you would learn it. Uh, you could actually pick it up and learn it at home. There was lots of, uh, it was sort of felt actually that women were innately born with the ability to sew. Mm-hmm. But as time went on, it varied with formal in the formality. Um, but there aren't very, very many records. Unlike men, if they formed a uh, apprenticeship, they usually got a contract. But women it was a lot more informal. There's, I found a few records of a milliner who really kind of kept a record. And the problem, there were several problems with this. One, if they're training someone and the person's coming, they have to have a place to stay. And the milliner uh, is not going to want to necessarily put all these people up. So the, the uh, trainee has to find a place to stay and work with no, for no fee until uh, she actually becomes approved. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it varies a lot, but there's a training period of about, I would say, two to three years. There's a difference in learning how to make spring hats or summer hats, which are straws and things with flowers, and fall hats and winter hats that uh, are heavier materials with velvets. Um, that's usually the way it's divided. Um, so it's difficult. And unfortunately, as time goes on and there's more unscrupulous men that put people to work, often they will uh, have the person work for a while and then fire them and not hire them and mm-hmm. then go out for more free labor. Free labor. labor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you just mentioned fall hats and spring hats. And you've already touched on the fact that this was considered a seasonal profession during the 18th and 19th centuries. So why was it seasonal, and how exactly did this impact the labor force in terms of production? Well, it, um, I mean, we have it today in, in retail. You talk about the period after Christmas uh, when things are slow. Uh, you maybe talk summer is usually a slow period. But um, they would actually staff up for spring. Mm-hmm. when That's when people, you know, needed a new hat, usually around February. And then when summer came, they would fire them just to cut costs. And the same thing is pick them up into the fall. And then when after the holidays, they would fire them. And that's actually what happened to Emma Ann Foster, who I mentioned in the uh, period of the Civil War, uh, where she would face, she at the end of the book, uh, the end of the diary that we have, she has been let go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was constant. And so women were constantly, this is actually one reason that uh, milliners were difficult to unionize because, you know, they were constantly you know, they were in a fluid workforce and they were constantly looking for work. Mm-hmm. So how did women face this? Like, were there, was there a, like another seasonal profession that kind of like 
rose to incorporate that workforce in? Or was it this constant source of stress and anxiety for these workers? It was stress and anxiety. There were schools that started in the early 20th century training schools, Mm -hmm. which actually the seasonal industry uh, study was uh, to address because they realized that there was an oversupply of workers. Mm -hmm. And there was a thought that maybe uh, these women could be trained to make lampshades as well as uh, hats to kind of fill in the gaps. But there weren't, that was a small industry too. And there wasn't much of a demand for lampshades. I would would imagine being part of the fashion system, which is (laughs) Ever looking to right. constantly reinvent itself, there would be a much greater demand for millinery than, right. than lampshades. But still, you it's it's very seasonal. And this just continues on. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 30s, you have this problem uh, again. Yeah. So some of the tasks that these workers undertook were kind of specializations. Mm-hmm. And there was a workflow within the ateliers. Can you tell us a little bit about how some of these workshops were organized? Yeah, they worked around, usually they worked around well, a table. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you actually, uh, Edith, Edith Wharton gives you a really good picture of that in House of Mirth. You start out with an apprentice, the apprentices start, and they do the the basting and the trimming, uh, the basting, the most basic sewing. Uh, you said that I did study millinery. I did study it at FIT. I have to say, even though I feel like I have a lot of, hand skills, it's the most difficult thing I have ever done because the stitches are supposed to be invisible. Wow. And sewing the trims on, the trims are supposed to look like they just blew on the hat. (laughs) So it's really, really um, meticulous work. So you have the apprentices and then you have a, someone called a maker. And a maker is someone that builds the, these hats were built on frames, frames of various sizes usually made of wire. And so the, the, the maker would make those frames. And then the frames are covered with shirred material. And that would go back to, um, to some of the, uh, the apprentices. Actually, if you go through the uh, Illustrated Milliner trade book, you see pages of pictures of these different types of wire frames. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually give directions on how to make them, I, which... I can't imagine how hard that would have been, but they, that's that was a very important part of the work. And then you have someone called a copyist. Mm-hmm. And the copyist is someone who is going to copy a hat, often one that was imported from France, uh, because France was it. There, you know, until the 40s, American uh, milliners did not think that they could exist without the designs of France. So that these hats uh, would be literally imported from France in very carefully secured boxes to be copied. And it would, you could buy them at a pretty hefty fee. So the copyist would work. And then as the copyist is sharing and covering, then the final, and usually the person on the highest end is someone called a trimmer. And the trimmer is the one that decides where the trims are going, these all important trims are going to be placed on mm-hmm. that. A very, very uh, high-end and uh, wealthy shop will have, would, might have a, their own designer, but that's kind of rare. Okay. So that's, that's sort of how it, it would work. And the trimmer's kind of in charge, mm-hmm. and they, they, you know, oversee the, uh, and they make money. It's also very difficult to move up into being a trimmer. Why so? 
it just is because it's a, you know, there's not as many, they don't need as many people to do the trimming. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of those jobs that people. You have uh, to have the eye. Yeah. Well, you have, you, but you really have to, you know, people, you know, were really critical mm-hmm. and really um, aren't going to uh, elevate somebody uh, unless, uh, you know, there's really impressive. So Talent. It's, it's a difficult. Talent matters. Yeah. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Many millinery establishments were women run, and this begs the question about their legal rights at that time. And also, how were women milliners and business owners in turn, or, or business women, I should say specifically, how are they socially perceived in the context of marriage? What was that power dynamic between the husband and the wife if she was working? Often, it's, there's, there's questions of even brought up. Uh, there was an article I mentioned in the book called Should a Milliner Marry? Mm-hmm. Because once a woman under the 19th century, well, once a woman married, then all her earnings went to the man. It was femme couvert, this, that, that uh, doctrine. And you find a uh, mention of uh, women should maybe not marry because if they marry someone who's, you know, who's going to use all their funds or going to take all their money, uh, it's going to be really very difficult. So I think it varied a lot. And women were in a very, especially before they were in a very difficult position because, for one thing, milliners have to have a lot of trims on hand mm-hmm. and capital. a lot of supplies. So they have to have capital to purchase these. And as it moves along into the Gilded Age, uh, where the expansion of um, fashion and the expansion of demand, these men really begin to take over because they have the access to capital and they are controlling the, the supplies mm-hmm. of trims. And so they really begin to take over and employ. And, of course, with the huge wave of, of immigration into this country, then you have um, really sweatshops where they, uh, not only are people turning out hats, but they also have flower places and places where they're producing uh, the feathers, mm-hmm. uh, which I have pictures. And all of that is uh, is controlled by someone a man who has the money to control this. And with the development of the department store, the demand has only increased. And, uh, you know, often even department stores establish their own departments to produce these things. But that pushes the milliners 
out of sight so that it kind of devalues the actual appreciation of the skills of the milliner. Because even though people uh, in the 19th century, um, women weren't supposed to work, that you know, but the milliner was such an important service that uh, Belle Otis or Carolyn Woods, who wrote that memoir, talks about how much, you know, in great deal, how much she enjoyed this. But there's also a, um, just like many others, there's, of course, this anxiety about fashion and fashion being too powerful. And so you have two um, sort of images of the mill, just like several other images where you have the elevated virgin and you have the woman who's uh, tempting and evil. You have that in millinery, and I have an example in a book where you have this sort of young, virginal young woman, this preposterous story, and it's completely preposterous, of this young milliner who comes to London, this is a, and um, gets trained, and she goes walking in the wrong place with a man who tries to get her not to, and this, of course, she uh, goes home, and it's, it just goes on and on, and ends up with her finally getting married, but not without many problems along the way in maintaining her respectability. On the other hand, and this was a story from Godey's, the women uh, were, you know, sort of portrayed as almost as, as evil crones and mm-hmm. people uh, sort of money. Uh, Mrs. Slimmons is this woman who actually, if you've figured it out while you're reading the book, she's only in her 30s. Mm-hmm. But they're talking about how she has fake teeth and fake hair and and she's always trying to get a man and she gets a sort of subject to uh, one of her milliners runs off with the man who's taken money from her, and then this young other man takes all this money from her, and she's always being uh, victimized by that. So, and, and so it's a figure of, of real ridicule. Mm-hmm. So you have those two views, and that I'm sure t- that takes place all through sort of the 19th century view of women mm-hmm. in the extremes. Well, yeah, and also, too, just the fashion trades in general. And I'm sure the seasonality of uh, the hat trades played into that, too. We do see some critiques, and we actually have primary source documentation as well as some of these fashion workers who were kind of working on the lower echelons of fashion, sometimes during these time periods had to turn to prostitution to provide for their daily needs, to be able to eat, to be able to have somewhere to sleep. It was or, also or, or, it was also hanging over these women. It would sort of be used as this about these women because actually there was a study done in the 19th century of women who went into prostitution, and most of them had been domestic workers. Mm. But there was a constant, because I think the milliners worked in a uh, sort of a more, whatever, more glamorous place. Uh, there were lots of articles about it. Yeah. And um, lots of moralizing about it. And I talk about some of the, the you know, the art. So it, it was kind of this constant concern about mm-hmm. women in fashion. And fashion is a way of falling. The ghost in the looking glass, I've, you've probably seen that image where the woman is, is dressed in a fashionable dress and this crone is uh, running the shop, is leaning over her shoulder. And there's a woman in the mirror who's feigning. There's also this obsession with... Um, women working in, uh, and lots and lots of art of women working in garrets, stitching, the Thomas Hood's uh, book about the uh, diary of the, um, the milliner. And so, the, you know, the, you didn't want to be too seduced by fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and it goes completely hand in hand with that sort of moralizing tone that we see in so much of 19th century right. writing, right. whether it be fiction 
or whether it be editorial, but it's a common thread throughout. Yeah, yeah that's why Virginia Penny was such a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I want to turn our attention to the 20th century and industrialization because this is also the point where we start to see a lot of public discussion, at least, about the working conditions within the industry. Would you tell us a little bit about activist concerns and also labor organizing efforts? Um, you know, they, they span the gamut across the fashion trades, but, you know, millinery. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting because um, when the milliners, that huge wave of migration, the milliners came into the country, well, not milliners, they were the immigrants, um, often they were met when they they had gone through Ellis Island, the families would meet them Mm -hmm. and immediately take them to get new clothes. Mm -hmm. These were especially the wave of uh, Jewish immigrants that came into the country. There's a wonderful movie called Hester Street from the 1970s which actually does a really great job of showing this sort of dichotomy between the uh, uh, Americans who here and the new immigrants coming, and actually their headgear. But women who were trying to organize and trying to find a place in the world, uh, really one of the uh, most famous organizers named Claire Lemlick actually said, what do you want? She said, one thing we want is a place to hang our hats. Uh, And they went on the picket line dressed in their hats, their dresses. And the reason they did that is they wanted to be seen as Americans and they wanted to be seen as respectable. Mm -hmm. Even though they were beaten and they got into fights with the police, uh, you see the pictures, um, a lot of the famous, some of the famous pictures of uh, the groups picketing before the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. This was extremely important to them. Mm -hmm. And it was important just to have the respect. Mm -hmm. Really very hard to get. The labor movement was not particularly welcome to these women. No. At all. (laughs) They really, um, men viewed them as coming in and maybe going to undercut their salaries. There was a, um, at one point, there was a time where the men were trying to get better wages. And the idea behind it was not that everybody would get better wages, but that the men could get better wages so their wives wouldn't have to go to work. Mm-hmm. That it was the male responsibility it was the male. to be the provider for the women in their family. And they also didn't, you know, they the milliners on the lower, for instance, on the Lower East Side, they had access to the materials and they would buy like silk, silk petticoats and you know, French heels and decorate their hats. And that was even the reformers that came down uh, and, they uh, were trying to uh, sort of uplift them, or the males in the uh, labor industry uh, were appalled. They thought, oh, they're spending their money on these frivolous things, and they're not really serious. Uh, and they thought that they should be dressed in, you know, like save their money and dress. And of course, that's just not human nature. And so there was a lot of tension there, and it took a long time for the uh, actually uh, cap makers union to expand. To include women. Mm-hmm. And when you say cap makers, um, that was generally, those were for men, right? Right, Male caps. Male cap. Male cloth caps. Yeah. It's got a long term. They, they added the milliners, uh, and they were suspicious, the, the milliners were suspicious of them, and they were suspicious of the milliners because of, uh, you know, the materials. And, and also, especially because sometimes there was a class difference 
the milliners often worked uptown and worked at Foss, where the uh, male hatters and cap makers worked downtown mm-hmm. and were largely immigrant. So there's lots of um, lots of tension in that that as well. Yeah. Nadine, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss the inner workings of the American millinery trade. Listeners, both April and I were delighted to learn the origin of the term milliner. Stems from Milaner, referencing the trim purveyors of Milan, Italy, who were known for traveling, sometimes even abroad, to sell their wares. Yes, when I read that, it was a very aha moment for me. Why did I not make this connection before? (laughs) Listeners, more connections are to be made for you on Thursday, as this is only part one of our two-part episode with Nadine. And there are some surprising connections at that, I must say, including Cass, get this, the mob. (laughs) I think that does it for us dressed listeners. May you consider the hands that made your hats next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, please do so at dress.iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episodes. And that is at dress underscore podcast. If you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your feedback. Just like we always appreciate our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. We will top off your tet on Thursday with more millinery. Trust the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.